Well, hello, everybody. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and, and thank you, David, for including me in this uh, presentation. I'm sorry, now I'm making a huge noise. Is that okay? Always nice to begin with a tune. Here's another one. Well, the internet's making a fool of me. Okay, here we go. Subject, how about this? ハズミグルマの回転エネルギーは背中のハグルマを通ってオーブにも伝わるアームを動かします。アームは口の内部にある人工生体につながっており、生体を押し縮めることで音程を変えます。また回転エネルギーは皿型の株にも使わりもう一つのアームを動かしますアームは口の開閉をコントロールし和と歯の音を作りますこれをホルマントの変化と言いますまた流れる量をコントロールしますあ、V語が空気を送ることで和歯合合
And just one more. So you're probably all wondering what the hell is going on. Um, and that's reasonable. What I do need to find is my, uh, my keynote, which hopefully will kind of contextualize all of this. So, so here we are, an interdisciplinary art science research and development project, um, or falling between the cracks and loving it. So I thought today, rather than give a, a dry kind of presentation about methodologies for, for interactive art and science, uh, or sorry, interdisciplinary art and science research, I would simply give you a case study um, which might generate some quest as many questions as answers, and that would probably be good. And the project is a project that I'm currently working on. It's a long project, and um, it's a project to build uh, mechanico-pneumatic voice synthesis machines, which is a absurd and anachronistic project. Um, is it an art project? Is it a science project? Is it a philosophical project? Um, yes. So, what are the what are the aspects of the project? Um, I, there's a strong strain of study and research in the history of science and technology. There's study in particular sciences, ethnomusicology, phonology, otolaryngology, um, technical fields such as robotics and biomedical engineering. There's a, there's a kind of science-like task of, sorry, I'm not sure why this is feeding back, of deploying engineering-like technical constraints. There's a kind of... Um, uh, technical project of, of, of the combination of traditional artisanal practices with sophisticated uh, uh, um, institutional research methods. There's a kind of philosophical reflection on, on, the, on the relationship between humans, prosthetics and machines. There's an inquiry into scientific epistemology. There's the construction of, of devices which are performative and there's humour. Now, this is the technical constraint that I set myself um, in order in, in, in making this project. This was the, the task was to make sounds with the amplitude, frequency, range, and timbre in the range of the human voice, with air pressure and volume comparable to what can be delivered by the human lungs. That's a pretty challenging engineering task. And as yet, I've only partially succeeded. And the other day, I was asked the question, why, why did you choose to pursue this project? And I found it to be um, more difficult to answer than, than I expected. And, and, and I, I guess the answer is, in some sense, it had the right smell. What does that mean? Well, 
working in a kind of open interdisciplinary realm means that the conventional disciplinary criteria don't necessarily apply. I mean, quite clearly, when you engage in interdisciplinary research, you put yourself outside of the uh, paradigms and the axiomatic assumptions of the disciplines which you might be in the process of leaving. Uh, you put yourself at the edge of the envelope of institutional structures of validation, uh, also of funding, of course. So being out there in the truly interdisciplinary uh, territory is a lonely place to be. So you fall back on your own devices. It, it, there are no other criteria. No one's saying, yes, that's good science. No, that's bad art. Right? So you kind of fall back. On, you have to fall back on, on, on a set of values that you might build for yourself. And for me, um, I chose to pursue this project. And it's a, it's, a, it's a complex project because it had the right combination of intellectual interest, theoretical coherence, technical viability but also technical challenge and, as I said, an irreverent sense of the absurd. Now, sometimes I might want to frame this project as an art project, but since we're not all artists in the room, and anyway, even if we were all artists in the room, we'd have very different ideas of what art really is and what it's for, I should say that I'm an outlier in the art world. And although sometimes I like to think that what I do is art practice, I don't really care. Um, so what, what is it that I think I do? And I think and I came up with this idea when I was an undergraduate. And at, at that point, I think it was naive and presumptuous. Um, perhaps it's still naive and presumptuous. But there's something about um, making things uh, which make an argument. So, what's the argument that Fetus is making? It certainly uh, seeks to invent the uh, conventional privileging of semantics over affect invoice synthesis, but that's a rather technical and specialised sort of claim, and there's a much more general uh, uh, um, angle that I'm pushing at, and that uh, angle has to do with cognitivism and embodied cognition. And we may get to that. But this is another way of thinking about it, that it mixes hardware and software in unconventional ways, destabilizing the conventional hardware-software hierarchy. That is, that we're naturalized to a kind of um, top-down, control, uh, open-loop uh, logic of computer programming. We're naturalized to an idea of, of um, general-purpose code that runs on general-purpose machines. And I'm completely opposed to that. I'm proposing absolutely eccentrically crafted code, which is, which is crafted specific to the physical and mechanical qualities of, of the devices. And I've got a reasonably long history of making these kinds of, these kinds of projects, although there's not that much digital technology in this project because the whole idea was to get away from that stuff and to present something that was actually antithetical to the whole paradigm of, of um, digital cultures. So talking about performativity, um, what I'd like to think is that rather than simply describe, render, or represent, these, these devices will perform their argument. And, and in this, I'm, I'm subscribing to, to, to an idea that, that Andrew Pickering 
has, has, has presented in his book, The Mangle of Practice. Some of you might know it. It's a wonderful book on, on, on science, uh, science practice. And, and he comes up with this, this distinction between what he calls the representational idiom and the performative idiom. And he, he increasingly regards these as entirely separate ontologies. And what he argues is that science is in fact done in the performative idiom, but formalized in the representational idiom. And one of the things that, that I've found very useful about these ideas is that, you know, I, I, I come from a tradition of making interactive art. And one of the things about interactive art is once you are engaged in an ongoing process with an artifact which behaves in a quasi-biological way, then the conventional separation which we're used to in both art and science that the object of my interest is there and I am here, that there's a distinct subject-object uh, binary, is, is collapsed. What I'm interested in when I'm interacting with an interactive thing is partly what I'm feeling, what I'm doing, my, my real-time awareness of the process I'm involved in. And so um, that's, I think, sort of a, some background to this idea of performative, uh, performative systems. You know, it's not a poster session. So this is where I, I kind of this is this is what I was alluding to a moment ago. The sort of deeper um, philosophical dimensions of the project. So I have a general feeling that we are at the end of a century which privileged abstraction and symbolic representation over materiality. Uh, and there is sort of a technological and philosophical history which supports that. Um, and as, an, as a practitioner, as an artist who works with computer technology, this, um, the, this conflict is, is, has been very strong for me for my entire career. That what we have, in fact, is a collision of two completely different worldviews. One of which is committed to uh, uh, knowledge as abstraction, as symbolic representation, and the other which is committed to knowledge as sensorial experience. And that's why I think, you know, talking about this in this particular gathering, um, uh, I think is, 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 is really important. Because on the one hand, we can talk about interdisciplinarity, um, you know, between uh, a material scientist and a chemist, you know, uh, that's a kind of interdisciplinarity in which a lot of the fundamental assumptions are common. You know, we can talk about... Um, interdisciplinarity between, for instance, a physicist and a poet. And that seems to be a bit of a stretch. You know, it's the classic two cultures divide. And yet, on some level, the practice of those people is the same in the sense that they draw from the experiential world and produce symbols. And I think one of the things that we can say about cultural practices and about um, art is, is that, and this is a generalization, is that artists take the world and they make more world. Right? And, and they don't necessarily move the work into the realm of symbolic abstraction. And if they do, it can sometimes be a temporary sort of a phase. Uh, a, a composer writes a score. But the score has to be performed. 
right? So there's a kind of translational process. Um, and sometimes it doesn't happen at all. You know, if I'm a potter at the wheel, you know, I'm taking the world and I'm making some different world out of that same stuff. Um, now, the question of whether that's invested with symbolic content is, is a deeper question, right? But I think you, I think you get the picture that, that negotiating between the representational and the performative is a much more ontologically substantial kind of interdisciplinarity than, than negotiating between the humanities and the sciences. That's my argument anyway. So getting back to fatus, what is a phatic noise? A phatic noise, um, that's where the, I've sort of the fatus, the term fatus is a, is a back formation on the word phatic, and some of you might know that a phatic noise is a kind of a grunt, a sigh, a, a, non-semantic, a non-semantic vocal sound, and what's, what I've become aware of is that those sounds are thoracic. They're, they're very bodily. You know, it's like there's not a lot of articulation in the vocal tr- in the kind of far end of the vocal tract where we where we articulate language. Right, so it's, it's all about that. So so here's a here's a postulate a postulation that that phatic vocal sounds uh, occupy a different socio-cultural space from linguistic vocal sounds, and I think there's also um, I, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm I'm guessing that neurologically, what drives phatic sounds is a quite different aspect of the brain from what articulates language at the far end of the vocal tract. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't carry meaning. So what is the status of the sigh, the grunt, the laugh, the moan, you know? Um, as as utterances, as human communicative gestures. So this is what I was kind of thinking about in building this thing, you know, a, in the kind of art context, in context. Um, you know, I, I, I just and this is where the perversity of the project comes in. I say, you know, it's kind of interesting to 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 consider the possibility of building machines that are in pain or appear to be in pain that up so persuasively emulate these markers of 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 biology and human quality that it's it's a little bit uncanny that's essentially where i would like to go with this um, the charming gurgling of the prelinguistic infant the lusty gutturality of lovers the anguished wailing of the bereaved the disquieting hooting of the autistic, the deaf, and the insane. These are the kinds of sounds that I want my machines to make. So, yeah, so there's another synopsis. Um, I'm interested in a non-electronic, non-digital technology which produces non-semantic, emulates non-semantic voice. So, in a sense, you know, in terms of sort of the historical trajectory of, of these things, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of inverting the equation and, and playing with what comes out. I mean, it's interesting to, and the, where this comes from, a part of my, as part of my critique into sort of digital culture is the, the awareness, as we've all experienced, that, that digital voice synthesis has been utterly preoccupied with the 
with the transmission of semantic content via syllabic utterances, which, which adheres to a kind of Shannon-esque notion of communication as the, as the transmission of data from a sender to a receiver in a way that is not, that's, you know, free of noise. Uh, so that notion, that, that sort of technologized notion of voice or speech um, completely leaves out affect, obviously. Now, that's beginning to happen, that, that digital voices are starting to to, to, to be sophisticated enough to, to in, include affect, but it, 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 clearly the highest priority was the idea that what communicates in voice is semantic content. And I think we, it's obvious just from listening to each other speak that there are all sorts of other dimensions of voice which are communicative. I'm obviously not angry with you. So, um, getting on to the sort of uh, historical dimension of this inquiry, um, the the history of building voice machines is is fairly old. Um, this is a photograph of von Kempelen's uh, mechanical voice machine made in the 17th century. You may be aware that Erasmus Darwin is is recorded. Uh, and published posthumously in 1803, uh, of talking about building a machine that produces voice-like sounds. Um, Sir Charles Wheatstone, well, here's a couple of other drawings of, of uh, von Kempelen's machine. Um, von Kempelen was a Hungarian courtier and, and engineer. He's also the man who made the chess-playing Turk, the famous automaton hoax. Uh, which also had a small uh, voice device of this sort embedded in it, in it, but the one word it said was check. <laughs> which is still a pretty good achievement. I know, for something made of leather and wood. Um, now this is, this I believe to be a modern drawing of Sir Charles Wheatstone's reconstruction of von Kempelen's, uh, von Kempelen's voice machine. And it's and it kind of in an interesting story of, of history of science and technology. The young Alexander Graham Bell was taken by his father to meet Sir Charles Wheatstone and saw Wheatstone's voice machine and went on to go home and build one of his own. And the rest, as they say, is history. Um, Wheatstone is one of those fantastic polymaths. You know, those of you from the sort of engineering world will remember the Wheatstone bridge. It's a simple device for measuring uh, an unknown resistance. But Wheatstone also built a, a system of telegraphy which was, which was competitive with Morse's system for many years in this country. He finally had the good graces to abandon it and acknowledge that Morse's system was simpler. Um, he invented uh, stereo cinema, 3D cinema. Um, he also invented the most popular musical instrument of the 19th century, the concertina. And he, in fact, came from a family of musical instrument makers. So 
or, or you know, or, uh, one of the things that I'm finding in looking at these people, looking at Helmholtz and Ohm and and Julien Marais, is that these people are all polymaths. They don't give it. You know, they're not bound by these kind of disciplinary, uh, 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 narrow disciplinary definitions that that we're acclimatized to in 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 the academy. You know. Uh, one could go back and look at these people and, 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 and sort of recognise that they were all over the place all the time, and that was probably what made them interesting. Now, this is some um, Faber's Euphonia. This is unfortunately a completely lost machine from the mid-19th century, 1846. Um, the, the Euphonia not, could not only speak but sing and was controlled by a, a complex kind of keyboard. Regrettably, there's almost no records, apart from a few popular news uh, reports and the odd etching of this sort. Um, it's very sad, because, because it was clearly a pinnacle of the art. And in fact, the man suffered. Uh, eventually, he became a kind of sideshow uh, for for the Ringling Brothers circus and died in poverty in, in uh, Philadelphia or something like that. I can't. You know, it, it's not a great story. This is a photograph of another sort of voice machine based on a completely different sort of um, uh, acoustic machinery. This is Mirage's siren-based um, vowel articulators, and this is a rather later. Um, modelling of uh, of the shapes of the vocal tract, mouthing vowels. This is Paget's work from the early 20th century. Now, one of the things that I've found in looking at this work is that this tradition of building performative machines peters out and dies at in, in the second half of the 19th century and is replaced by a different modality of knowledge. And that knowledge has to do with transcription, abstraction, and symbolic representation. Um, and the, the classic example is, is, uh, is Murray's spymograph. This is the sort of one of the root documents in, in this study. The spymograph is, is etching a, a line on a piece of sh uh, smoked glass which is recording the pulse of the of the patient as a as a waveform. Now, what happens through the rise of descriptive geometry and analytic geometry um, is that traces like this are then subject to mathematical analysis, so that the and we know this, right? We see electroencephalographs and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the whole of medicine and, and much of engineering is concerned with the which, with curves which are transcribed from the world and then increasingly abstracted, understood mathematically by Fourier transforms and all the rest of it, right? Um, so this is when the location of the knowledge moves away from the material device into the realm of abstraction. And of course, 
It's precisely these abstractions which are then implemented as machines in the digital computer. And we couldn't have computing, we couldn't have programs and algorithms, right, um, without, without this history, right? So that you might say that the history of, of computing is 150 years old, and, you know, even if we were to ignore Babbage. There's another one of these things. Here is the, um, the phonautograph, which was the precursor of Edison's phonograph. Um, inscribing sound directly onto a wax roll, and this is the kind of traces that come out of those things. And, well, I'm going to show a, a, a little footage of, of my own work. I hope now that the videos I showed at the beginning, actually I've got more stuff to show, but I'm obviously running out of time, because I wanted to show some of my actual research in building these machines and the different aspects of building lung machines and building larynx machines and building vocal tract systems, but obviously I'm not going to be able to do that. But I do want to, before I switch out of the keynotes, I want to show you some quotations which I think are quite important for me anyway in encapsulating what the problematics of interdisciplinary, uh, interdisciplinarity are. So here's Roland Barthes saying interdisciplinary study consists of creating a new object which belongs to no one. Um, and Niels Bohr saying much the same thing. Um, all knowledge presents itself within a conceptual framework adapted to account for previous experience. And any such fame may prove too narrow to comprehend new experiences. And of course Albert Einstein who famously said, if, it, if we knew what we were doing it wouldn't be called research. You know, and so this is a real problem, right? Because when we're applying for grants, increasingly the sort of neoliberal structures which organize this thing want to know what the result's going to be of the research before you even do it, which is ridiculous. Billy Kluver, you may not know this name, he was an engineer who, who established the quite famous art and technology movement in the 60s in New York. He was a Bell Labs engineer and he worked with artists of the caliber of Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns and David Tudor. And he said that, and he put engineers together with artists to build things and he said this lovely thing. All the art projects I've worked on have at least one thing in, a com in common. From an engineer's point of view, they're ridiculous. So, um, and this is one of my favorite adages which bears on this question of what it means to produce symbolic representations, what it means to actually make things. The difference between theory and practice is greater in practice than in theory. And that is definitely true. Um, so, I will just end by showing you a quick video of about f just a few seconds. Uh, oh dear, it's gone. Where did it go? That's very weird. Ah! Anyway, uh, let's see. Let's try this. Here we go. This is something that I've built. I might have to refresh this. There we go. Here it is. If I'd had a little more time, I, I, I would have um, gone into the, the, the sort of 
different streams of, of actual R&D practice, building synthetic larynxes, building models of the vocal tract, building lung devices, and finding out how they work. And I, I would just say one thing, that the, the challenge is to try and work out how biomimetic I have to be in order to produce sounds which are persuasively human-like. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting intellectual challenge, and, it, and you can only do that by building the damn things. And I will say one thing, that I've talked to acousticians, phonologists, um, uh, 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 um, biomedical engineers, all kinds of people, not so much the biomedical engineers, and I said, okay, I've got this problem. What, what are the qualities of the human voice? You know, how... And, and they said, oh, that's, that's really... I mean, I can show you a graph, you know, and they pull up a graph or they, you know, and they say, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of got that, but how do I make it? No idea. That's kind of, yeah. All right, good enough. Thank you for your attention.